When I prepare to preach to you guys, I always um, have in my note sheets all of the passages of Scripture that I'm going to preach out of and mention. I always have them um, written into my notes. Uh, but I like to bring my Bible up to the pulpit because I, I want to lead by example. And I want you guys to bring your Bible to church. And so today I feel a little exposed because I can't find my preaching Bible. And so I just have my notes up here. But when I'm reading off my notes, just imagine that I'm reading out of my Bible so that you can see that it's important to have the written word in front of you. Even if if it's on your phone, that's good too. But there is something about just having the written word in, in, in physical form that we can flip through, that we can write notes on. Um, if you don't have a, a Bible with you today, we would ask that you raise your hand and our guys will bring one of those to your seats. We would love for you to have the scripture there available to you. Um, it is a blessing to us to have the word so readily available, isn't it? So many countries, so many languages, if, if you want to know about Christ, it's hard to get the word in your, in your language. Um, but we are blessed as English speakers to have so many faithful translations of the word. And the, and the Bible seems to be available everywhere in America. You can get it for free in most places you go to. So that's something we should not take for granted. That's something that we should appreciate. That the Lord has blessed this nation with an abundance of the written word. But again, that written word does its good when we take it to heart. When we put it before us, when we meditate upon it, when we consider the gravity of what God has shown to us, when we allow it to refine us, when we allow it to make us the people that God would have us be for His glory. So that is what we are doing right now in a worshipful way to God. We are opening the Scripture together and we're letting it speak to us. And we are humbly and meekly asking God to teach us and to train us and to make us more like Christ so that we aren't just wandering through the world doing our best to figure it out as we go, but instead we're letting the lamp of the Word light our steps and guide our path. So this is an important part of being a Christian, is getting that Word open before you. And it shouldn't just happen on Sundays either, brothers and sisters. We should be in this Word every day. We should be reading what God has prepared for us. We should be seeking Him, um, whether that's reading what you're studying on Sunday so that you'll be familiar with the text or whether it's reading other things in the Old and the New Testament so the whole counsel of God's Word can richly bless us and dwell with us, uh, we should be in front of God's Scripture. So that's something that's always going to be an important central part of what First Family Church does. It encourages people to read the Word, to know it, and we're going to be teaching the Word to you and, and we pray a faithful way so that we can all grow strong together in the unity of God's Word. Well, last week we worked through the introduction to Paul's letter intended for this group of churches that were situated in a region that Rome called Galatia. And I gave you a little bit of a cliffhanger last week. I mentioned that the Apostle Paul almost always includes a formal greeting when writing to each church. Much of Paul's writing is letters. Um, but the letter to the Galatian church, or Galatian churches rather, lacks one of his signature elements. One of the key parts of almost every one of his greetings is not there. Paul doesn't commend the church in Galatia for anything. He doesn't spend any time in this opening sequence applauding the work that they are doing for the Lord, acknowledging their great faith, praising God that, that He had blessed them with such faithful friends in Galatia. He doesn't do that. Paul is grateful for every church that God has allowed him to serve. Both the churches that he personally started, many of those churches in Galatia began because of his and Barnabas' mission efforts, but he also cares for the churches that were started by other apostles, Churches that he still loves because he identifies them as part of his overall family. That we are all part of this family of God that believes in Christ and is identified in him. So Paul very consistently, through all his letters, uses a part of his introduction to encourage those people that he loves dearly. To commend them for the work that the Lord is doing in their congregation. And often these, these heartwarming commendations were expressions of Paul's thankfulness for the people to whom he writes. Many of the people that he writes to are, are sending offerings to bless other churches. He thanks them for that. Many of them are standing firm in the faith, even in, the, in face of opposition. People are persecuting them, and he thanks them for that. He acknowledges their steadfast love for the Lord. He acknowledges their endurance. Here's an example of that. In Philippians, the letter to the church at Philippi starts like this. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy 
because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I'm convinced that the Christian greeting card industry would completely be destitute if it weren't for the intros to all of Paul's letters because that's where they rob all their great scriptures from. From these passages where Paul says, I'm so blessed to have you in my life and I'm praying for you regularly and God is doing a good work in you. Even the church at Corinth, if you know anything about the church at Corinth, it was, it was a struggling church. They had many issues. There were factions there. They suffered from serious disunity. And they were guilty of tolerating disgraceful sins among their members. Even they were greeted with kindness and thanksgiving by the Apostle Paul when he wrote his letters to them. Here's 1 Corinthians 1, verses 4 through 9. Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking any gift as you wait for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a great way to start a letter to somebody that you love and care for. But this is not how our letter to the Galatians begins. Paul doesn't commend this group of churches in Galatia for anything. Rather, he lets his deep disappointment be known right at the outset of his letter to them. The Galatians are in the process of making serious mistakes in their church, and Paul needs to get right to the heart of it. And so we're going to pick up where we left off last week, reading in the sixth verse of Galatians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul writes, by the direction of the Holy Spirit, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, and so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul's bringing the fire to start this letter off. He is not wasting any time at all. Rather than commend these churches and pad his greeting with positives, Paul chooses to immediately confront what he sees as a tremendously dangerous development. Apparently since his last visit to these churches, Paul has received word that a group of preachers claiming to be disciples of Jesus Christ has entered into the region and has begun to preach at the churches in Galatia a message which is similar to the gospel that these churches originally received from Paul and Barnabas and the other missionaries who planted them, but is different in such an important way that it cannot rightly still be considered the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul is astonished that such a serious problem could have so quickly infected the churches, especially considering that he himself so recently saw them flourishing and embracing the truth. Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 14, these two chapters record the tremendously effective work of the Holy Spirit that Paul and Barnabas and the others with them experienced while spreading the gospel through that region of Galatia. This happened around 47 to 48 AD. If you haven't read Acts for a while, I encourage you in, in support of what you're learning on Sunday mornings, go home this week and read Acts 13 and 14. This represents the first mission efforts of Paul. This is his first assignment as a church planter. At the, at, up to that point, he had been teaching and edifying the people in Antioch of Syria. But he was commissioned along with Barnabas to go out and preach the word. And so this mission's journey bore much fruit. It was very successful. First, they preached to, to, um, to the people on the island of Cyprus. They went from uh, establishment to establishment there, teaching about Jesus Christ. Then they made their way up into the region of Galatia, starting in Antioch, Pisidia. There were two Antiochs in that time, a little bit confusing. 
They started in Antioch of Syria and then ended up in Antioch of Pisidia where they began this, this journey through Galatia. There they were given a chance to present the gospel to almost the whole town. First they were invited to, to preach in the synagogues and they went and they shared the truth of Jesus Christ. And then the people who were there were so struck by the message that they invited almost the whole town, Gentile and Jew, to come and hear this great message of Jesus the Messiah. Many of their Jewish brethren believed in that town. But then some resisted their preaching and began to oppose them. When they experienced the opposition from these uh, Jewish traditionalists in Antioch, they showed from Scripture how Abraham had been told that his offspring would bring salvation to many nations, that Jesus was in fact the fulfillment of that promise. And they opened the gospel to the Gentiles. And many of the Gentiles believed, and the church grew tremendously. They experienced persecution soon after that in Antioch. And after having established the church there, they thought it would be best for the church and for the gospel's spread to move on to the next town. So they moved to a town called Iconium, where they followed a similar pattern. First they preached to the Jews, and then they opened up the gospel to the Gentiles, seeing converts from both groups. They stayed a long time in Iconium, the scripture tells us, building up the disciples and establishing a church of believers there who knew the truth of the gospel. And when persecution began to arise against them there, they were afraid their opposition would try to stone them. They were going to try to get, they were going to be murdered if they didn't get out of town soon because they were causing such a stir. And so Paul and Barnabas and the others moved on. They went to the town of Lystra. In Lystra, their preaching was accompanied by some miraculous signs, miracles as people were healed. And so the, the people who were there, particularly the Gentile people, saw these miracles and they were not familiar with that. And so they mistook Paul and Barnabas for a manifestation of the Greek gods. They thought that Paul was Hermes, a great messenger of Zeus. And so they started to assemble a worship ceremony to glorify and honor Paul and Barnabas. And they were, they were horrified by this. Paul and Barnabas insisted that they did not worship uh, Paul or Barnabas or any of their, their party because they were just mere men as, as the others were. So they had to clear up some of these false ideas that the Gentiles brought into this new faith that they were learning about. Eventually the reception grew so cold in that town, Paul literally was stoned by the people. The, the Jewish traditionalists there were threatened by this gospel, just as the gospel had offended people wherever Jesus went and shared the truth of his his position as Messiah, so too as the church begins to spread, uh, do those Jewish traditionalists begin to feel threatened by this new, uh, this new Jesus who's come in and, and become the, the Savior of God's people. And so they, they literally stone Paul. They take him outside the city limits and they drop heavy stones upon him as he, he sits in a pit. And they think they've killed him, but the Lord God has more plans for Paul. And so miraculous, he, he gets up and he walks away from that attempted murder, goes back into the town, meets with the people there, encourages them, and then decides to move on where he goes to the town of Derby in Galatia, where again they preached the gospel, saw many people saved, established churches, encouraged the new believers. You see a pattern going on here? They stayed long enough in each location to be sure that the essential doctrines of the New Testament were clearly understood by the people there. I love to hear of people being saved, but I also love to hear about people being saved and then immediately put into the context of true ongoing discipleship. We can't be content to just cast the seed of the gospel and walk away from it and hope it grows up and bears fruit one day. Paul and his accompanying missionaries, they did the faithful work of not just bringing people to salvation, but training them and teaching them and helping them become better aware of this gospel that was transforming their lives. Once they had finished their work in Derby, the missionaries reversed course and they made their way back through each of those cities, encouraging the believers that they had established earlier and appointing elders in those cities so that there would be right leadership over those churches, making sure that they were standing firm in the faith they professed. So you can see how Paul would be so upset that he hears now that those churches that were established and rooted in the right faith are so quickly moving away from it. That was only about five or six years ago that he was there establishing them and helping them to grow their roots. But the quickness with which they have drifted is not nearly as alarming to Paul as the perverse nature of the doctrines that they have begun to believe. 
Galatians 1, verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Look at the word Him there. The Him that He's referring to is Jesus. By turning to a different gospel, He's saying you are deserting the Jesus who saves you. Paul's not offended that they are listening to other teachers. The hymn doesn't refer to Paul. He's not saying, I can't believe that you're turning away from me, your father in the faith. He's not so petty as to be uh, envious over others that might teach the gospel. The hymn that the Galatians are deserting in verse 6 is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus' identity is intrinsically tied to the gospel. It is about what Jesus did. The gospel is about what was accomplished by what Jesus did. It is why He took on flesh in the first place and came to this earth, humbling Himself and being in the form of man. So to tinker with the gospel, to change it or to edit it or to add to it or to subtract from the gospel is to attempt to revise Christ Himself. This problem was not only an issue in the early church. This is an incredibly relevant scripture for us to think about today. Throughout the years, many people have tried to change the gospel of Jesus to fit their personal desires. They would love to give the gospel a makeover so that it more looks like what they want the gospel to look like. Some have altered the gospel in such a way that the focus is no longer on Jesus answering the problem of sin so much as it is focused on figuring out how We can harness the blessings of Jesus to make a person prosperous here on earth. This false gospel, which in some ways sounds like the gospel of the scriptures, is called the prosperity gospel. And it makes Jesus into one who didn't come necessarily or primarily to save us from our own sin and rebelliousness. It becomes a gospel that is just a a rich well of blessing that we can tap into if we're faithful enough. It's a false gospel. Others found it easier to latch on to the moral and the ethical implications of Jesus' work and have made the gospel about equality and compassion. Not that those are bad things at all. Those are a component of the real gospel, but they are not the focus of it. Instead of the gospel being primarily about fixing the broken relationship that we have with God, instead of the the gospel being about our vertical relationship, man to maker, The social gospel wants to make Jesus and his work primarily about fixing our relationships one to another, man to man. So it takes something good and it twists it in such a way that it is not in its right place anymore. The focus is no longer on the atoning work of Jesus. It is on the fringe impact of the atonement of Jesus. There have been edits to the gospel that reimagine Jesus as the first advocate of free love and universal tolerance. Some people think Jesus was the first hippie. There are takes on the gospel that would cast Jesus as a feminist who came to earth to ease the plight of the oppressed gender. There have been many ways that man has tried to exploit the notoriety of Jesus to support their own personal agenda. But each of these Gospels is a dangerous threat to the person and character of Jesus because each edit, by definition, tries to change who Jesus was and what Jesus did. To desert the Gospel as God has revealed it to us, to turn away from the Gospel that God gave to us in love and mercy is to turn away from Jesus Christ Himself. And that is a serious offense to him and a danger to our souls. So friends, we might ask ourselves this morning, if there is a threat of a false gospel coming in and turning our attention away from what really can save us, then what is the real gospel? What should all, we should all rather be able to answer this question, shouldn't we? If we are believers in Jesus Christ, the gospel is so fundamental to who we are, it should be part and parcel of our our heart and soul. It should be the air that we breathe. But sadly, so many people who identify themselves with Christ, when asked what the gospel means, when asked what the gospel is, have a tremendously tough time explaining it to people. 
Many can give you a few impressions of the gospel, but they fall short of including the critical elements that make it saving grace. Some get it partially right, but find themselves integrating other ideas that are foreign to the scripture, but might be really significant to that individual. Others spend much time on the consequences of the gospel. They'll share their testimony about how the gospel has changed their life and affected them without actually saying what the gospel itself is and how that change was made possible by the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus Christ the Lord. If the good news is the heart and soul of who we are, friends, if it is the fundamental plan that God has laid and is accomplishing through the whole arc of human history and existence, then those who call themselves by Christ's name must take the time to know the gospel and to be able to explain it to someone, asks, to someone who asks us. It's not, it's not enough for us just to know in our heart, really. We must be responsible to this message in such a way that if somebody else is lost and seeks the truth from us, the saved and the found, that we can communicate it to somebody else. Don't forget the words of another apostle whom we love and respect, Peter. In 1 Peter 3.15, he says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and with respect. So friends, we need to be ready. If we call ourselves the children of God, if we are followers after Christ, this gospel has got to be right on our lips. It's got to be right at our fingertips. We've got to be able to show and teach people what the true gospel is so that they can decide for themselves whether they want to trust it or not. I'm going to break the gospel down into four easy segments for you today as we think about this primary definition of the gospel because we're going to be using this throughout the rest of our time in Galatians as, as this letter is largely about Paul keeping the people in Galatia from buying into the wrong gospel. We need to know what that true gospel is right here in the forefront. And so the gospel is first about God. It's not first about us. It's first about God, the righteous creator, the perfect, loving, and just maker of all things. He's always existed. He has never not been. God is greater than us. He is holy, which means that he is set apart. He is unique from everything else you'll ever encounter or experience. God is the only God. And he made all that you see around you. He made mankind, particularly for our good and for his glory. He is without blemish. He's absolutely pure and perfect. And because of his very nature, he cannot be near to what is wicked. He can't have fellowship or friendship with what is evil. He is in charge of all that he has created. So he is not one that just makes and then abandons or withdraws. He is actively ruling over what he has created. He is still absolutely relevant to every created thing because we all depend on him for our subsistence. Our subsistence. He is sovereign and he must judge what is wicked. Because he is perfectly good, if there is wicked around, he cannot sit and just let it be wickedness. He has to judge it. He has to deal with it. It cannot go unpunished forever. But he is also a merciful, loving, and patient God. And so if you, brother in Christ, sister in Christ, want to know what the true gospel is, and you want to be able to communicate it to someone, start with God. Tell people that there is a God. Don't just assume, necessarily, that people believe there is. Because we live in a culture today where the, the enemy has been so effective at his deceptions that many people walk this earth just thinking that God is an idea, that he's not a real person, that he's not a real being, but he's just a concept. So tell people that there is a God, that he is mighty, that he is over us, that because he gives us life, there is a debt of gratitude that we owe to him. The second element of the gospel is that God created man. Man is the fallen sinner. That is the role that we play in the gospel. We were not originally made to sin. We were made for relationship with God. But we have become universally flawed by our sin. Every human being whom God has made 
is born now with a tendency to sin because the first man and woman sinned and have passed that tendency on to all of their offspring. Not only are we born with a tendency to sin, but I guarantee you that everyone in this room is guilty of some kind of sin or another. Probably today, if not this week. Human beings may make efforts to do right things, but at our core we are a selfish creation now because we have been spoiled by sin. It has affected us so intrinsically, but we cannot help, from, uh, we cannot help but sin. Our sin is, by definition, transgression from the law of God. That means God is good. He has authority over what He has made. He, we belong to Him, and He has made order for His creation. And any time we break His rules and ignore the order that He has designed for His creation, we move away from His law and we offend Him. That is sin, friends. Whether that be an act of evil, such as murder or a lying or theft, or whether it be an act of ignoring what is right, when we fail to love and we fail to be truthful, and when we omit kindness and mercy from our lives, that too is sin. Our sin is transgression of God's law, not just Moses' law. The law of Moses explains sin to us, but sin existed before Moses. Otherwise, God would never have flooded the earth for the sin of man. We see the natural presence of God's law. Even if we don't understand it entirely, every human being knows that there is a law and knows that they've offended this God who has made them. Every man owes a debt to God. And that debt, since he is the giver of life, can only be paid with life itself. The wages of sin is death. We deserve for God to take our life away from us. So God is first. Man comes second in our understanding of the gospel. And third, we need to be able to express and describe to somebody the role that Jesus plays. Jesus is God's plan for redemption. The great conflict in all of creation is that God made man for fellowship with him, but man sinned and broke that fellowship and now cannot be near to a God who is holy. Something has to be done to make it possible for man and God to be near to each other again, or man will defile God. That's impossible. So how do we bring man near to God again and restore that broken relationship that sin has destroyed? Well, God was not pleased to let his wrath do away with man, but God has a responsibility to judge sin. The only solution to the problem was for God to intervene and pay the penalty for sin himself. God the Father sent his son Jesus Christ to accomplish this perfect plan. Jesus has always existed as part of the one true God. He willingly humbled himself and left the comfort of heaven to take on a human body and to live like us. Though he lived among fallen man, Jesus was unique from fallen man because he never transgressed God's law. Because he never committed sin, Jesus owes no life to God. You and I do. So Jesus takes his absolute lack of debt and he pays the price for our debt with his incredibly beautiful and perfect life. Though his perfect life did not deserve punishment, he willingly subjected himself to it on our behalf and died in the place of those he would save. Having died for sin, Jesus showed his power as God and rose from the grave, having defeated sin and death. So God is real. There is a conflict called sin, which cannot be solved by man, even though man has tried to solve that conflict by himself. And every false gospel, I would argue, by the way, is a way of man trying to solve that problem apart from the power of God apart from the provision of Jesus Christ. And Galatians is going to expand on that as we study further. This is the very redemption that Paul was referring to in verses 3 through 5 of the introduction to this letter. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So Paul has already described in some terms this gospel that the Galatians seem to be turning away from. But there is a portion that we have yet to describe to you. Four parts to this important gospel. The fourth 
is faith. Man's response to God's grace needs to be faith or a man cannot be saved by Jesus. You see, Jesus didn't just universally save everyone. The work on the cross is powerful enough that it could have done that. But the sad reality is that many will hear the gospel and will turn away from it. Many will see the truth that God has sent His Son to redeem us, and they will say, thanks but no thanks, I'm good. I'm going to do things my own way. The heart of man is proud and wants to solve problems on its own. Only those who respond to the free gift of God with faith, trusting in Jesus to be their Lord and Savior, believing that God raised Him from the dead, just as He said that He would, and giving themselves over to Him, only those will experience the new life that can only come through Jesus Christ. So let me sum it up for you in just a couple of sentences, friends. I know that that seems like a lot, but when it's your heart and soul, when it's your everything, that's not a lot. Okay? This is something we can handle. This is something that we can, we can gain a grasp upon to such a degree that we can teach that easily to others. You don't have to be a pastor to share this stuff with the people around you that you love that need Jesus Christ. So let me summarize the gospel, the four points of it this way. This is the true gospel. God is good and God made man. Man is sinful and cannot be near to God. God desires to be near to man, so he sends his son Jesus to die in man's place. Jesus, the son, pays for sin, rises from the grave, and secures salvation for his people. Those who are called by God respond to this gift of faith and receive the saving grace of Jesus Christ. By faith, they now belong to him and walk with him. That's the gospel. That is the true message that we come each Sunday to celebrate. The transforming power that only God has over the crooked heart of man. Knowing this is critical. It keeps you from being deceived, friends. If you don't know the gospel, then it's not so hard for somebody who is really good at speaking and has a magnetic personality and who seems very confident in what they portray to you. It's not hard for that individual to sweep you off your feet, to come into your life and to convince you of something that Jesus never intended you to believe. This gospel is the very basis for your right relationship with God. It is the seed that you might plant in a lost loved one's heart as you invite them to consider giving their life to Jesus Christ. That is why we preach it so frequently. Try not to get worn out on this, friends. We preach this gospel because without it we are a lost people. And we will continually preach this gospel because it is the bread and butter of Christianity and it is life-giving to us. That is why we ask potential members to explain the gospel to us. We want them to be able to communicate what has caused them to have life instead of death. That is why it will always be central to everything that we do. As a side note, if, if you want to prepare yourself to give a defense like this, if that was helpful to you, there's an expanded version of this that, that uh, Pastor Paul faithfully put on our website. He did a great job in expressing the four elements of the gospel message. You can go to that website anytime and you can just read it over. You can think about it, pray through it, quiz yourself on it. It's not hard to become really familiar with this message and it will so equip you to do the work of evangelism that you'll be much more able and willing then to ask somebody, so what do you believe about Jesus Christ? Because you'll know how to respond in a clear and succinct way and share with them what the scripture has revealed to you. This one true gospel is the good news, but it is not something that everyone wants to hear. Why do people want to pervert the gospel? Why do they want to twist the truth of Jesus Christ and make it into something that it is not? Because the true gospel is offensive to the natural heart of man. The gospel that we celebrate each week had to hurt us before it could heal us. The honesty that God brings to his people cannot just sweep us in and say, you're okay, it's all going to be good. He's got to show us the seriousness of our sin. When we hear the words of this gospel, the first point, that God is the creator, reminds us that we're not the highest being in existence. And that's hard for many human beings 
to swallow because they want to think of themselves as the highest being. They want to think that there is no greater charge over them. Human beings do not want to think that there is a power that they are beholden to, that there is a giver of rule and law that they must deal with. And so this offends the heart of man to know that God even exists and that He's beyond our understanding and that if we're going to know Him, He's got to reveal Himself to us. We can't figure it out on our own. That hurts man. It is offensive to us to hear that we're sinful. That's why so many churches or places that call themselves churches today sadly will not mention sin from the pulpit. They don't want to offend people who come into the congregation. They want those people to feel comfortable. They want them to feel at home and good. And don't get me wrong, at First Family Church, we want you to feel loved here. But loving people tell the truth. When somebody cares about you, they've got to be honest. And so to, to share the gospel with somebody is to, to come in a gentle and loving way, but to be very straightforward and say, listen, you, just like me, are a person who struggles with sin. Has that sin been answered in your life? Christ answered it for me. The gospel is offensive because we're not capable of saving ourselves. And this is at the heart of much of what Paul's going to battle against in this letter to the Galatian churches, is that man wants desperately to be able to undo what he has done wrong. I don't think there's anybody in this room who wouldn't admit, at least on the surface, to having failed in some ways in life, to having made some mistakes, to having sinned against God, almost everybody is going to be able to say, yeah, I've, I've done some things I wish I didn't do. You know, sometimes you'll come across somebody who says, no regrets. Everything I did was what I was supposed to do. But I think deep in the heart, deep in the heart, we know different. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Part of our remorse in that makes us desperately want to do something to pay God back for our failure. Something in us that we might even think is noble wants to rise up and prove to God that we made a mistake before, but now we're different and we're good and God should love us. We want to believe that we're more good than we are bad and that the scales of justice tip in our favor. But the true gospel, the offensive gospel of Jesus Christ is no child. There is no work that you could do that could tip these scales back. There is no effort on man's part that can make you pure and perfect to such a degree that you can have fellowship with a pure and perfect God. That's out of your hands. And when you try, when you make every effort to climb the ladder to heaven, you frustrate and exhaust yourself again and again and again. But along the way of frustration, there are these tiny little victories that make us think, oh, I'm doing it. I'm getting there. I'm better than my neighbor. I'm better than I used to be. This is working. But it's self-deception. And so the churches in Galatia need to be defended from this desire to save ourselves by means of the law, by keeping God's commands, because we've already proved that we cannot keep them perfectly. There's one more thing that's really, really offensive about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's the fact that it proclaims without shame to be the only gospel, to be the one and only way that man can be reconciled to God. According to the scriptures, according to the very mouth of Jesus himself, there's no alternative. We want options, don't we? Human beings love to be able to choose their own adventure, to pick their own path. We want to say, well, I like, I've looked at all the different religions. That one seems to be more my style. I think if I'm just faithful in that route, then of course God's going to see that faithfulness. He's going to reward me with heaven. No, friends. The gospel doesn't work that way. And so the true gospel that is displayed to us says, there is one way, and that one way is Jesus. Jesus says it himself, doesn't he, in John 14, 6, when he says that I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. One way. And that way is not through our efforts. It's not through our work. It's not through our faithfulness even. It is through the grace of Jesus Christ. Verse 7 of Galatians 1. Not that there is any other gospel, 
But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Do you see how Paul takes no risks here? He says, I see that you have been led astray by this other gospel. But immediately he makes it very, very clear. He doesn't want anyone to be distracted by this. But it's not actually another gospel. There is no other way. There is no alternative gospel. In reality, all of those other gospels are a mirage. There is no substance to them. Jesus proclaims, I am the only way. He does not say that other ways, if followed faithfully and with good intentions, are enough to save a person. There is life and there is death. Life is dependent upon faith in God's one true Son, which is built on the work of Christ alone. And if we reject this gospel, we have rejected the one avenue for life that has been provided to us by the Father. Apart from Jesus, we would all choose death. If we have the Son of God, we have been given the life. There is no other option. Paul makes a number of things very clear in this introduction. There are specific false gospels that are being taught, one in particular in Galatia, and is being accepted by many in the churches in that area. He, he makes it clear to us that, that this gospel is very dangerous. And later, Paul will hint that this false gospel was being brought in by others claiming to have a greater revelation of truth than Paul or the other apostles did. The specific way that the gospel was changed by these individuals, the way that it was twisted and edited seeks to, and seeks to pervert the truth, we don't quite know yet. Paul has not revealed it at this point in the letter. We're going to get there. But we will learn later on that this false gospel sounded much like the true gospel, but it added requirements to faith and grace. It made it necessary for man to meet certain obedience requirements before God's faith or God's grace and the faith that we have in Jesus Christ could actually save us. This is a critical error. But at this point in the letter, Paul's initial goal is to make it crystal clear that it doesn't matter how the gospel is changed. If it's changed, then whoever changes it has seriously offended God. Verses 8 and 9 carry the same confrontational tone as verses 6 through 7 did in declaring the very serious consequences that will fall on someone who knowingly distorts the gospel to make it what they want it to be and then preaches the counterfeit hope to other people. It says in verses 8 and 9, we'll read again, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Do you see how much is on the line here, friends? If someone perverts the gospel, then a curse of death is to be upon his head. Now the word in the original Greek here is anathema. You've probably heard that word before. And it means set aside to be handled by one in authority. Set aside, in other words, for destruction. Marked for punishment. An equivalent phrase in our language might read something like this. Somebody who teaches a false gospel is a dead man walking. Their fate is sealed. But his executioner will not be man. It will be God himself. This is a much greater penalty, by the way, than excommunication. This is different than church discipline where someone who is living in sin is, is, is not willing to repent and so God instructs the church to try diligently to get them to turn away from it. But then if they refuse to turn away from their sin, if they persist in it, if they are stubborn, then the church is to cease fellowship with that person. The church is to cut off friendly interactions as a, a sign to that person that their sin is serious, is interfering with their relationship with God. The hope of that being that the excommunicated person would then see the error of their way, would love and miss the fellowship of the saints, and would return to repent to the Lord God and to be in good fellowship with Him again. But this is different. This is about damnation. This anathema is a very serious, serious thing. And so Paul has got to be very clear in the way that he preaches this. Note also that Paul implements even himself in this warning. He says, but even if we preach a gospel, 
He's saying, this isn't just my rule to other people. You've got to preach Paul's gospel or else you're a goner. He's saying, no, this is God's gospel. And so we are beholden to this law as well. If we were to come and preach the gospel differently to you than we did last time, if we were to change some of those core elements, if we were to edit it or twist it or add to the, the grace that Jesus saves us by, then we would be under this same curse. He's emphasizing the fact that it's God's gospel, the only true gospel, and that the message is of greater importance than the messenger is. Paul's not just upset that they've got new teachers and they don't write him as much as they used to. Paul's not crying because he wanted to be their number one guy. What he cares about is the message that he gave them. And if they abandon that, they abandon him who sent it, Jesus Christ. So even if Paul, the apostle called by Jesus, were to preach the wrong gospel, then he or Barnabas or Peter or whoever it was who perverted the truth would be just as guilty as the men who were trying to teach this false gospel to the churches in Galatia at the time of this writing. Even if an angelic messenger, if they came claiming to have some new information regarding the gospel or claiming that God had made some slight modifications or enhancements or that the original apostles had missed out on some of the important details, even those angelic messengers would be condemning themselves by preaching this treachery. And don't put it past the enemy who masquerades as a being of light, who masquerades as a beautiful angel don't put it past him to try to convince people in this world that some sort of additional revelation is giving them an enhanced gospel that is somehow different. That's how the deceiver works, friends. So we must be aware of the ways these things are, are fed to the people. Even if an angel from heaven were to preach a different gospel, we've got to be ready to reject that. Are you prepared, Christian? to discern between a false gospel and the true gospel as it is described to us in the pages of God's holy word? Are you ready to be able to discern what is preached to you? Are you ready as you read your Christian books to, to decide whether or not this author really has the true gospel in mind as he gives you instruction or interprets passages of scripture to you? Are you ready for that? It's our heart and, and our desire as elders of this church to ready you for that so that you would be prepared to see the difference between a real gospel and one that is in many ways like the true gospel, but contains an element of poison in it. We want you to be ready for those things. If you are here today and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, I pray that you wouldn't be put off by these things, but you would see the seriousness of it. Because there is a God in heaven, and He is here with us now. His presence is among His people. And to know that God... You have to go to him by his path, by the way that he has determined. He has gone to great lengths to secure salvation for all who would trust in Jesus Christ, his son. And you could know that right relationship today if you place your hope and trust in him. This was not a mere hypothetical. Though the guidelines apply to the disciples and the angels as well, they most definitely apply to the false teachers who had pushed their fake gospel upon the Galatians. In verses 8, it says, If anyone should preach to you a false gospel. But in verse 9, that changes to, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you have received. A person who preaches a false gospel threatens to take the spiritual lives of others. They are, in essence, terrorists of spiritual persuasion. We must be ever vigilant against wrong teaching. Now, the very preaching of such a false gospel makes one worthy of a curse, but Paul though very stern here, is not writing to the Galatians without hope. He refuses to commend them, but he also refuses to condemn them outright. Look again at verse 6 of Galatians 1. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Deserting and turning are in a present tense participle form. That means you are beginning to act this way. He does not say you have turned, you are condemned. He does not say you have fallen for it, there's no hope for you anymore. This is not a letter of destruction to them. It is a letter of preservation. 
There are some among you who are doing the wrong thing and embracing false things. But listen and learn and turn again to the gospel that saved your souls. For those who believed in a false gospel, there is still hope. Those individuals can turn from the twisted version of the truth to the gospel they used to cling to. They can receive with meekness the true gospel that Jesus delivered in person to Paul on the road to Damascus, that gospel of free grace in Jesus Christ. And as we continue to study through this book of Galatians, we're going to see that hopefulness of Paul begin to surface. Of course, the seriousness is expressed right here in the beginning of the letter, but the reason he writes to them is out of deep love for these people that he has poured his heart and soul into, that he has shared his life with so that they might know the truth. In no way, shape, or form is he going to stand back and let these false teachers come and rob these individuals of eternal life simply because Paul was not there to defend them. So let's be grateful that the Lord God has given this letter to our church as well, that we have such strong teaching to make clear to us what the gospel is, that we might not be deceived, that we might not drift off of the anchor of true salvation that we have been given through Jesus Christ, that the grace of God might abound in us as we live this gospel out for his glory. Would you bow with me, friends, as we close in prayer? God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for my friends who have uh, sat under this teaching today, Lord God. I pray that each one of us would receive it with hearts of gratitude, Lord, knowing that it comes from the Holy Spirit and not from man. I pray, Lord God, that you would bless us with a diligence, Lord. I pray that every Christian in this room would apply themselves to knowing the gospel, not just so that they would be confident that they're saved, Lord, but that they might be able to communicate that powerful message to others and put it before them so that their eyes and their heart might be able to see and discern if this is something that they believe. Father, we pray that the wicked heart of man will not believe it unless the Holy Spirit intervenes. And so we do pray, God, we pray fervently that you would be saving people among us. We pray for our neighbors. We pray for the, our nation, Lord God, that there are so many lost here that need to know you. God, we are, we are a nation far from God right now. So I pray, Lord God, that you would have mercy upon us. God, that's, you don't just save people by no means. You save people through the means of the church. And so I pray that you would apply us to this mission, that you would help us to be diligent, to keep our eyes open to opportunities to pray with individuals who are broken and hurting, who are devastated by their sin, and who are desperately needing to be near to you, God. Let us show them the way through your scripture. And we pray this all through the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. Amen.